Right. Everybody was really quick to criticize Senator McConnell when he he said once that, um, you know, candidate quality matters. And he, he was just making a vague comment that maybe, you know, there might be some candidates out there that need some work. And he caught a bunch of hell for that. But at the same time, his Senate leadership fund, the super PAC aligned with Senator McConnell, has dumped $196 million across the board into all of these races. And between September 1st and Election Day, half of all Republican spending in Senate races is coming from the Senate leadership fund. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Two and a half weeks away from the midterms, the latest projections. We have the Senate map, Herschel Walker's trajectory in Georgia, a new poll in Nevada. Whither John Fetterman? What issues do voters care about? Donald Trump versus Republicans? Mike Pence deflects? Scott talks NFL concussions with Dante Stallworth. Is your fantasy team to blame? But first, welcome to Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford, and the aforementioned Mr. Jennings. Hello, Scott. Joe, good to have you back for a full show. You've, you've decided <laughs> to come back to work. I know this, this job is the most uh, important priority in your life, and we're certainly glad that you've refocused on things. And so, uh, candidly, I was just tired of doing it. And so I'm glad you're here to... <laughs> Take the burden well, off my shoulders. <laughs> actually, Scott, as, as we'll find out at the end of the program in Seen Red Herd, I almost did not make it yet again this week, but I'll explain why. First, I want to talk to you guys about where we go for our information. What is reliable? We had in a moment here, I'm going to hear from Joe Biden uh, about some of that, his concerns about maybe a lack of not knowing what editors are, are filtering the news these days for us. But I want to talk to you guys this morning or this, this, on this show as a, as a parent because this advisory committee, the CDC, voted on Thursday in favor of adding the COVID vaccine to the recommended immunization schedule for children and adults. And so there's all kinds of chatter about this online. And I guess at one point, I don't know if it was Tucker Carlson or someone else complaining about the fact this is going to make it mandatory. So that most of the reporting I saw on this was people saying, no, 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 this is not true. I, I couldn't find anything saying, OK, what is the actual case? So I just want to point this out. I mean, first of all, I think I understand now this is an advisory, but states oftentimes lean on the CDC for guidance on these things. So it's not with, for, without the realm of possibility here that some state's going to say, well, the CDC says we should do this. We're going to make it mandatory now. Yeah, the, uh, the story today, and this happened just a couple hours before we were recording this on uh, Thursday afternoon, the CDC's independent vaccine advisors voted 15 nothing to add most COVID-19 vaccines offered in the U.S. to the childhood, adolescent, and adult immunization schedules. Now, to your point about what the states are going to do, I read today, and, you know, obviously everything gets sucked into the political cycle. Governor Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma, for instance, who has been on the pod and friend of the pod, said that I don't care what the CDC says, I'm never going to require uh, kids to get this vaccine in order to go to a school in Oklahoma. I, so I, my suspicion is state by state, you're going to see a lot of politics involved here. Now people react to it, don't you think? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think uh, COVID vaccine mandates remain immensely unpopular, uh, especially when it comes to people's kids, where I think there's legitimate scientific basis for saying they're not, you know, incredibly effective. Uh, and I think a lot of European countries, you know, aren't aren't encouraging them or maybe even offering them to the kids. 
Yeah, I thought we were done with this, frankly. I mean, I, I know that we're still sort of struggling to figure out who to listen to and you know who's not being political here, who's being sort of down the middle, who actually cares about the kids, who's who doesn't. A lot of those things are, are tough. I mean, I thought we were over this. Ke- Kevin mentioned uh, the European countries that you know opened their schools much quickly than we did, didn't fully shut down all these things. I mean, it's so clear that this is this is unnecessary. We're over this. And and yet the CDC continues to politicize this, and I think again loses uh, them credibility, which in the long term just continues to hurt them. It is interesting, interesting the, to me. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I, I think the it's interesting about you know is this necessary now? I mean, I think at one point you know a strong case was made about you know why the vaccine was was necessary. Although it, it feels like we're finding out now that that maybe it, it's it, it wasn't. In terms of the transmission, all it was cracked up to be. I know there's been some back and forth over that uh, with some European countries. But but look, I, I think look, I think the people who made the vaccines made their best effort. I continue to believe Donald Trump deserves enormous credit for breaking down all the bureaucratic barriers to get it done. And the Congress that went along with it. Now we're a little bit removed from it. We have more information. We know a little bit more about this. And, you know, the, and, and then on top of that, we all, what else do we know? Schools are failing. Look at the national test scores. Look at the reading comprehension. Look at the national ACT and SAT scores, which are cratering. The school closures and keeping kids out of school were an epic disaster. And the idea that we would now keep a kid out of school over the vaccine, which may not be necessary for them, probably isn't. I just find that to be candidly outrageous. I mean, haven't we learned our lesson? about keeping kids out of school it seems like maybe we have it oh but remember uh dr fauci said this this week or last week that he had he had no role in school closures uh everybody's gonna be washing their hands really quick when a lot of kids can't go to school because they didn't get their vaccines uh but listen i i'm generally pro vaccine i think you know a lot of us probably are i'm also pro truth i think uh you should be honest about uh like scott said the efficacy of the vaccine and and what it really means for us uh and joe if if the news isn't going to do it for you i recommend you know talking to your doctor i've talked to my doctor and uh you know we talked to my my wife's doctor and our pediatrician um and, and, you know, we decided to get the vaccine for us and our kid, and I think it's a good choice. But it's that they have been more likely to actually weigh the pros and cons with us more than mm-hmm. any media outlet has. You know, I find it interesting. Well, two different observations. One, I, I, I already brought both of them up in, in one respect or another. First of all, when you Google, when I Google just now, you know, which states will require COVID vaccine for children, the first three re, you know, results I'm getting are the fact checking false coronavirus claim goes viral before experts can respond from the Washington Post, ABC News, CDC corrects conservative claim. They can recommend not mandate COVID vaccines in schools. But again, it's they seem to be missing the forest for the trees here. The CDC is recommending that it is added to the schedule and they are recommending. In other words, they want the states to follow this advice. They want the states to say, yes, this should be on the schedule and this should be mandated, which brings me up to the. So, first of all, I just find it odd that their biggest reaction is is more about the media fact checking than it is about, you know, the actual facts of what's going on for for news consumers. But the second thing I think is kind of odd, you know, this podcast kind of synchronizes with one of the first things we talked about on the debut of Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Were, were these COVID mandates and were Glenn Youngkin's ascendancy in Virginia and and all these different things. And we wondered out loud, at least I did, how long will this last? Will this last to the midterms? Will, will, will people remember 
come November of 2022, what happened and what will happen between now and then? And of course, a lot of things have happened since now and then. And later on, we'll talk, Scott, about the new poll about issues that matter. But I guess my question for you immediately, Scott, is does this if I'm a Democrat right now, aren't you saying, CDC, why are you putting this out right now? Isn't this the worst possible time to remind people about mandates? Yeah, well, the Democrats who would really care about it would say it's the best possible time, because how can the rest of us idiots not be thinking about this 24 hours a day like we are? We've not blinked since the pandemic started. We're, we're on the wall here. We're on watch. And you're I mean, that's how I think the people who are most dedicated to this are the ones who who um, wouldn't you know, wouldn't necessarily care about its impact on the political cycle. And so I think that's something Biden has always had to wrestle with, was that there's a significant portion of his base, uh, Kevin, who is desperate for the mandates to continue, desperate for the masking to continue, desperate for these, um, for all these emergency powers to continue. And even Biden himself is still, is still claiming emergency when it suits his policy aims. Even and though so he so said so. the pandemic is over, his administration re-upped yeah. the, the emergency so they could keep his powers. You saw Joe's friend, Senator Raphael Warnock, say that the economy is not doing well because we're still in a pandemic. So we're in a pandemic whenever it suits them, whenever they want more emergency powers. Um, and, and you're right, Scott. There's still, hopefully, I imagine there's a... Gr- a shrinking amount of people out there who are going to be forever maskers and forever yeah. lockdowners. Um, but but they're still out there. Yeah, Joe, all you had to do, I mean, you're sort of talking about like the difference between, we always talk about the difference between the coast and, and flyover country here. There were individuals on the Zoom call for the CDC vote on this wearing masks <laughs> on the Zoom call, wearing masks, okay? And so that's that's how out of touch these people are, right? I mean, they, they don't, understand middle america they don't understand the actual problems that that real americans are dealing with i mean scott was on cnn this week and talked about getting a rotisserie hot dog at circle k and they looked at him like he was you know an alien middle america buys those things all the time that's what we do we stop there at the gas stations we buy gas station food they don't have you bought a rotisserie hot dog before uh yes i don't know from a gas station Probably from today? a ballpark. Of course somewhere. he has. I mean, <laughs> yeah. On my way over here. This is, like, this is a daily lunch for Kevin. He's in there. He's getting like uh, one of the burritos, probably uh, you know one of those bananas that's in the basket up by the yeah, cash register, and a yeah. hot dog. Yeah. And a 64 ounce. <laughs> that's right. Why and not? Slurpee. <laughs> I, Kevin, I like your advice. Basically, in the long run, is just go to your doctor and ask your doctor, your pediatrician, for your for your kid's sake. It's obviously the best uh, advice there. So, but Joe Arnold is not the only Joe concerned about where to go to find, you know, the facts, real information. The guy named Joe Biden is also, according to mm. uh, Mike Mamoli's article in the, on NBCnews.com, uh, talking about, um, uh, about the president at a fundraiser last week bemoaning the decline of traditional news reporting at the expense of the Internet, saying there are no editors anymore. How do people know the truth? This is a concern going on with the president. And he, and he basically also chastising, I guess, the most of the news media across the country after the, the he was kind of being pressed on on abortion facts. He talked about that these being among the only press in the world that that does this kind of of back and forth. But so I guess what do you make, Scott, of of, of the president's, uh, I guess, frustration overall with with facts uh, or with with the news coverage of his presidency? 
Well, it's a time-honored tradition for presidents to believe they're not getting a fair shake from the news media. But, I mean, let's let's just be objectively honest here. Democratic presidents have it. I mean, the idea that he would believe that somehow they're being harder on him than they're being on or were on Donald Trump or George W. I mean, that's just patently ridiculous. I mean, they get they get a lot of passes. I mean, case in point, during the Trump years, you know, we had a constant uh, falsehood tracker going every time Donald Trump uttered a falsehood, which happened. You know, it was like a running tally. Look, Joe Biden lies all the time. I don't know how many times he's lied, but it's been a crap load. Mm-hmm. I don't see I don't hear anybody tracking it. That's just one small area where the media has completely changed how it covered the Republican president versus how it how it covers a Democrat president. So, you know, I I mean, look, I guess all politicians at some level think everything can be solved with communication. But what they never ask themselves and what this White House never asks itself is maybe we have a policy problem, not a communications problem. And I think and I think that's what we're learning in this election is that the policies they're pursuing and the policies they choose to emphasize are just not what the American people want or want to hear. It has nothing to do with comms. It has everything to do with worldview. Right, Kevin? Right. You know, there, there's an old saying uh, back from my days on Capitol Hill that there is no easier job in Congress than being a Democrat press secretary. <laughs> Because all you have to do is send out a send out a little press release, and everybody's going to print it. That is the fact. Whatever you put in your press release, yeah, Scott's exactly right. The, it is uh, shocking when a Democrat says that they're not getting good coverage from the news media. Because you know, if it weren't for Peter Ducey in the White House press uh, room, I don't know if anybody would you know really uh, hold. Uh, who, who's the White House press secretary, uh, Scott? Green Jean Pierre. Yeah, I don't know if anyone would ever ask her a tough question. <laughs> yeah, and even she struggles with that. Right. I mean, you know, she she has a hard time. You know, Joe, this story actually also made me think a little bit about sort of media coverage of politicians and campaigns right now. And I'm going to give a talk up at the Harvard Kennedy School on Monday to some some students about this. But just the nature of campaign and political comms, uh, I've heard from a number of reporters and you know who are frustrated. Uh, candidly that they can't they can't get access to republican campaigns and um i I think i think a lot of republican campaigns have just as a strategy matter decided to stop talking to the media because they don't believe they can get a fair shake they don't believe that there's an audience for what they're gonna say and they and they think the you know the risk reward of, of putting yourself in the meat grinder is just too high and you know i think i think in the 24 cycle I mean, you already see DeSantis doing this. It's like they're wearing their snubbing of the media as a badge of honor. And so when I think about what Republicans are doing or are about to do in terms of the party's overall media relations strategy, and then I think about Biden, I mean, this article was, you know, he's, he's complaining about the traditional media and they're trying to use, you know, quote unquote, digital strategies to go around it. If I were like, you know, like a media executive, I'd be thinking about this a lot. You've got one party that's basically cut us off and the current president of the United States thinking hard about it. I mean, to me, you know, with the industry continuing to suffer from low trust levels among the public, I mean, it ain't going to get any better if you seem to have lost your access to the two major parties in this country. Seems to me, again, this is an old, uh, you know, adage, if will, in terms of, and, and you're all public relations and communications professional professionals and the whole comms versus reality thing. I mean, at a certain point, you've all probably had clients or at least have consulted people who've had 
uh, problems. And in the long run, comms can only do so much if the facts are against you. And it seems to me that maybe the frustration that's that's kind of bubbling to the surface now with the Biden administration is that even some of their former allies in the press, I think they can I think they can smell some defeat coming. I think they can sense this, that things are not going well. And so you don't want to be on the wrong side of that, even as a journalist. If you're if you're a pundit, if you're a host of a cable show, I think you want to be a little smarter than that and not being kind of caught in a corner from your viewers saying, well, gosh, I thought you said everything was great. Well, it, so doesn't, I, it doesn't help when the president's out there licking an ice cream cone and saying the yeah. economy is doing fine. We have 40 year no, high. No, 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 no. Kevin, he, let me just let me just correctly quote the president. The economy strong as hell. Strong like, as hell. <laughs> I mean, I mean, think about that. The lived experience of most people on inflation and inflation outpacing their their salary gains and um, uh, everything going on in this country, and you've got the president eating ice cream and telling you it's strong as hell. I mean, it, this is not – it's not the fault of the media that he stood in front of a camera and did that. I mean, what does he want him to do, like edit it out, you know, <laughs> throw it away? I mean, I mean, that stuff right there. But on, on this topic, by the way, I'm just sitting here looking through some other clips on this. On The View today, Uh-oh. the dumbest show Uh-oh. allowed to be on television, Whoopi Goldberg today whining that the media – is not helping Democrats, quote, get their message out. And then Joy Behar, they were talking about gas prices, and then Joy Behar chimes in. It, blame the media. I mean, so this this desperation you speak of, Joe, about, you know, they see the writing on the wall. They, again, they don't they don't really, there's no introspection here. It's like, maybe we're wrong. Maybe what we're saying is, is not good. They're turning on the media. And so I, I don't know how this is all going to play out, but if this, we're going to talk about the polling in a minute, but if if it's true and Republicans end up winning this whole election, the media may be in for a rough ride from Democrats. I mean, you, you expect that out of Republicans, but it, it sounds like they're already kind of pre-programming their their blame game here. I, I think that's exactly right. I, th- I think, uh, like I said before, I, I think you're seeing a, a, a realization now. There is something about, you know, two, three weeks left in the election. Reality starts becoming a little bit more crystallized. And I think there are, are journalists and folks who work in the media who don't want to get caught with egg on their face. And I think it's a situation now where it's all kind of come home to roost. Let's talk about the midterms. Uh, let's, let's, let's go to that. I was looking, Scott, before you joined us here on the, on the zoom uh, about the latest real clear politics map uh, mm-hmm. that interestingly now has Republicans, 47 Democrats, 46. This is a Senate map with, uh, with seven toss ups there. Uh, they have Ohio leaning uh, to Republicans and, uh, but even the even some of the toss ups that appear to be, I, I, I would I would be curious about your your perspective and the, the toss ups here. I see several that I think you would think are going to be pretty solid: uh, Republican North Carolina, uh, Wisconsin with Ron John, uh, and a few others there. But anyway, what's what's the latest you have on uh, on the Senate on your own Senate map? Yeah, I'll start outside and work in uh, or up. I guess um, I think you're exactly right. I think Ohio, North Carolina, and Wisconsin have all moved into the Republican camp. I think um, the polling I've seen out of all three states indicates Republicans have have opened up a lead, and I don't expect them to relinquish it, especially when you consider the national polling, which we'll get to in a minute, and and the the obvious macro wins and the way they're blowing. I mean, the three states that everybody continues, I think, to rightly put in the toss-up category, because they are, I think, basically dead even, are Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada. Nevada, I would say is leaning Republican a little, although, you know, some of the polling this week, it was like the Republican was up a point or two. 
lack salt. But Georgia and Pennsylvania, I mean, are really close. Um, I was complaining this morning to some people that, you know, I hadn't really seen um, a Dr. Oz over the hump in a poll in a while in Pennsylvania. And then this afternoon, WTXF TV Fox affiliate in Pennsylvania put out their insider advantage poll and it had dead even 46, 46 uh, Oz and Fetterman. So you could see finally Oz getting up, up to the hump anyway. It's not quite over it, but certainly on the hump in Georgia, you know, there has just been a persistent one to two point down for, for Walker. Although the, the people in the Walker camp will tell you they've got it dead even, or maybe even Walker up a little. So we'll see. Um, uh, uh, you know, and then you, you take what you know individually about the races and then you, you, you add that to what you know about these national polls. We've seen New York times, Siena poll last weekend, uh, the Monmouth poll, I mean, it's obvious the Republicans have, have opened up on the generic ballot. It's unheard of for Republicans to really lead this metric. And, you know, if the Monmouth poll today is to be believed, uh, Kevin and Jared, you know, 50 to 44, I mean, that's wave watch. I mean, if, if Republicans end up going plus six on the generic nationally, I mean, I'm not sure you're going to lose a race uh, anywhere over that, right? Yeah, and you, you, even more than looking at the polls, you can even see that you know the Washington Post. I feel like has had a story every day about, oh man, things might actually be really bad for Democrats if they're already predicting it. Yeah, I think I think uh, Wave Watch is right. Yeah, and t- today in Pennsylvania too, uh, uh, Joe Fake News Biden showed up to to stump for Fetterman. Fetterman didn't even speak at the event. I mean this this thing. I mean, uh, really? it's going to be yeah. I mean, he came to stump for him, and this is a state in which I think Joe Biden has a thirty seven percent approval rating i don't know that there's any winds blowing in these candidates directions in states like uh pennsylvania uh georgia especially wisconsin to the dem candidate there uh again some issues joe he i believe he spoke to your favorite news outlet russia today um <laughs> that joke will never get old by the way. um but i just don't see anything really helping these candidates we're gonna i think we'll, we'll talk about you know some and- things the issue the top issues for for Democrats just not lining up with the top issues for voters still. I mean, another poll after another poll. And not only that, these candidates not really having answers for a lot of these issues, like crime, the, like inflation. The the uh, the shakiness of the Democratic candidates to me this week is really on display. Today, to your point, Jared, uh, at this Biden-Fetterman event, a reporter named Kyle Mazza, M-A-Z-Z-A of W-U-N-F, I think, um, it says, quote, I attempted to ask Fetterman if he was satisfied on the construction project progress of the Fern Hollow Bridge. That's where the Biden speech was. Fetterman's wife tells me they are there to celebrate and not to do interviews. So Fetterman himself was incapable of responding to this reporter and his wife, who is now I think Rolling Stone this week, described her as, quote, the de facto candidate. Right. I mean, the campaign in Pennsylvania has, has basically sidelined Fetterman and put his wife as though she is the one running, which she's not. And then in Georgia, I think Warnock is on the ropes over this eviction issue. Mm-hmm. His church owns a building, an apartment building, and they, they have the people. They have the eviction notices. And he's claiming, well, we don't really have anything to do with that. Well, we didn't evict anyone. And it's obvious that, that the receipts are there. And While he was receiving a big subsidy this, from, yeah, the, from he's the government. Yeah, a housing subsidy. And I just, I don't know. I mean, to me, uh, and then you can go on from there, like Mandela Barnes. I mean, all the stuff that's come out on him. 
I, I just the shakiness of these Democratic candidates at the same time that the national wins to Jared's uh, comment uh, on issues seems to be blowing towards the Republicans. So, you know, you put all that in the in the pot and spin it and, and you get the idea that it's 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 within the realm of the possible here that, that we're seeing everything break the exact right way for the Republican Party. I have a question, two questions for you all, but I'll start with you, Scott, on the back to, to Pennsylvania for a moment. First of all, just in terms of the decision to have Biden campaign there with Fetterman, and you would think that they would see ahead of time that this person is, and I know that I'll be, you know, excoriated for being ableist or whatever the word is for, you know, uh, pointing out that Fetterman or you know, uh, what you guys already mentioned that I guess he can't answer a question without having the closed captioning uh, mm. in front of him. Um, but all that said, why, why is it even a good idea to put him in that spot? I mean, why would you even, is, is Biden, and especially you just said Biden is 37% approval. What good came of that appearance for him? Well, I mean, it, it strikes me that the reason you would bring in Joe Biden to Pennsylvania, well, you know, he, he claims a, a, a kinship with Pennsylvania, you know, Scranton Joe and, um, uh, you know, maybe there is a lack of democratic enthusiasm for Fetterman. I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time believing that given how polarized these Senate races become, but I today was wondering, you know, was this a wise choice? And someone asked me on CNN today, do you think Trump should do a rally for Oz? And I, I said, no, I don't think so because it feels like the wind is, is already blowing the correct way. And when you inject someone into the conversation like a Biden or a Trump who is underwater with the voters you think, well, maybe they'll give you a boost with part of your base, but they may also be turning off some independent. In this insider advantage poll that has Dr. Oz and Fetterman tied at 46, independents were going for Oz by 20 points. And we know how bad a shape Joe Biden is with independents. So I, I, I thought it was a curious, a curious strategic choice today, but I'm sure Biden, you know, I mean, Pennsylvania, I mean, he, he considers himself to be a Pennsylvania guy. And so my guess is he just, he wouldn't take, wouldn't take no for an answer there. Yeah, that, this, this race is especially interesting. And Joe, you mentioned the interview that he had to use closed captioning for. Uh, if I think I'm right in that they've got a debate coming up this week. It's the mm-hmm. one and only debate between Dr. Oz and Fetterman. And uh, he's not going to be able to escape questioning that time. He's, he's going to have to sit there. And uh, I think Pennsylvanians are going to see the, the contrast between the two candidates. And I know he's he's running scared. He released another letter from his doctor that people are already saying isn't good enough. Who's a uh, donor to his campaign. Who's also a donor to his campaign. I guess it's good that your doctor likes you. But, yeah, um, uh, yeah I think in the next week we're going to see a, see a lot about that campaign. You, you know what else, too, Scott? You've, you've mentioned this a few times now. We saw this out of the new poll out of Nevada. I believe 80-plus percent of likely voters in both parties view these races as really the sort of tipping point of the Senate, right? So even if you have some slight concerns about candidate quality or their positions on issues, it seems like a significant 80 plus percent of voters, and that was Nevada, potentially similar in in Pennsylvania, are going to say, you know what, there's some issues here uh, with Oz, or I don't exactly love his position on X, Y, and Z. But I, I cannot let Democrats run Washington, at least for the next two years, right? And so if we're seeing that in Nevada, I imagine we're seeing that in Georgia and Pennsylvania. And so, I, uh, you know, the, the Fetterman campaign bringing in Biden, who seemingly these voters, Republican voters, are energized to stop his agenda, right? They just right, want, right. you know, they're not necessarily proactive, but they just don't want this guy and his team running the country for the next couple of years. 
I don't know why, you know, to your question, Joe, why they would bring him in if he's so unpopular in that state. Well, my second question on this, as you guys as campaign veterans, is this. It seems to me, and this is maybe this national coverage, I'm not sure what it is like in, for the actual voters of Pennsylvania, but this campaign almost has seemed to come down as a referendum on Fetterman's fitness for office. Rather than I don't know what they're saying about Oz anymore, or whether to what extent Oz is the is the motivating factor. I guess it's I guess Biden is still a big factor. But Scott, has has this become basically almost a referendum to say if if you think that he's capable of even doing the job in the first place? Well, I think it's part of the conversation, certainly. Uh, but no, I actually think this campaign has really turned to a large extent on crime. I think when you know, I think right after the primary. Oz was in rough shape. I and mean, there were some polls, you know, in, in June, July, he was down like double digits, you know, 12, 14, 15. So if you go back and look at the real clear politics, historical tracking of the surveys there, he had some, <laughs> he had some deep rolls, man. Like it looked like he was in rough shape, but then the Republicans started chipping away at Fetterman on his crime record, which is extremely liberal in terms of his preferences for letting murderers and others <laughs> out of jail. So I think, I think that Joe, the litigation of his record on crime at the same time where Fetterman was essentially incapable of campaigning or defending himself to me that that's why you've seen this thing reel in to some degree. Now I have wondered in terms of the debate, which is on the 25th as have expectations been so lowered for Fetterman that if he could just stand there for an hour and not, you know, lose, you know, whatever, I mean, will, will that be viewed as a win for him in the same way not exactly the same, but, you know, Herschel Walker at his debate in Georgia had set low expectations for himself. And everybody I know, even the Democrats, seem to think he won the debate. Uh, well, Fetterman's a different case because he's got this whole contraption that he has to use to be able to, to respond. And so I, I'm, I'm really curious to see how this works. But I actually don't think it's a referendum on his health. I, I think the I, I still think the issue matrix is what matters the most, inflation and crime. But I think his health has called into question whether he can even adequately defend his record on those issues. And that's why we've seen him come back down to earth. And, and there's one more issue I'll add to that, Scott, is fracking. That they've been talking a lot about fracking in Pennsylvania lately. And Fetterman is now saying he supports it after he's been very public on the record of saying he would never support fracking. It plays into the national energy conversation uh, as Americans are getting ready for the highest winter energy bills of their lives. Yeah, my prediction based upon what the, the Herschel Walker situation, who he did overcome uh, the, the very low bar that he set for himself there. I think Fetterman will clearly clear that bar because Fetterman gives speeches all the time. He doesn't when you give a speech, when you and, and even a debate, you're not really answering questions. You're just making statements. So he'll have his list of statements. He'll say the things he's been saying on the campaign trail by rote, like most politicians do for the last year. And I think as a result, his, 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 he'll say all the things that his supporters want to hear. And if, if that's any way a momentum shifter, I, I think that there is maybe a trap there for people who think he's going to be, you know, incomprehensible. I'm curious to see how this thing logistically works, because, like, they ask a question, then he has to read it. And then I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious to see how they handle this. And I do think there is some delicate work for Oz to do here who. You know, you can't come off looking like a jerk in this situation and taking advantage. But at the same time, you have to press your case and, and you have to be aggressive in pressing the record on crime and inflation. And the other things, it, it's a it's a it's a delicate thing. Now, Oz is a TV guy and he's a communicator and, and he has a lot of training at this. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how this thing I'm, I've watched a few of these debates this year. I'm, I'm definitely tuning into that one on the 25th. 
Barry, let's go to Georgia and uh, Herschel Walker with a commercial out in the Georgia Senate race. Closing argument from a legend. I'm Herschel Walker. I'm Herschel Walker, and I approve this message. I admired Herschel from the beginning. Herschel has always been challenged about doing things that people thought he wasn't capable of doing. He wants to be the best, and he has striven to do that, disciplined himself to do that, falls sometimes along the way, but he gets back up, and with his incredible drive and self-discipline, he has achieved mighty things. He's a real patriot of this country. He loves the United States of America. He also is realistic that it can be better. He is not a, quote, politician. There is a need in this country. There is need in this state for somebody like Herschel. Knowing him, the character that he has, he will make a great United States senator. That was Georgia legendary football coach Vince Dooley, who was also athletic director at Georgia uh, for many, many years, making the closing argument for Herschel Walker. I watched this ad today, and I was just stunned. I thought it was so well done. And obviously a respected voice in Georgia. Now, at the same time this is going on, guys, I've read just as we were we were going into the booth today that the Warnock campaign, and they've been avoiding this topic. They, they apparently have an attack ad out this afternoon going after Walker on the abortion stuff. And so – as I it's, it's sort of I read the strategic tea leaves, you've got Herschel going positive with Vince Dooley, and you've got Warnock going negative on this on this uh, Herschel Walker character attack. That ought to give you some indication about which way the winds are blowing down there as the campaign strategists see it. Yeah, what happened with that? Good, Jordan. Yeah, one of the things I, I really appreciate about the Herschel Walker ad, and I actually think just sort of his approach in general. This is kind of unique for a politician or, you know, even kind of any sort of leader is to admit that he's not perfect. Mm -hmm. He's been very open about his struggles with mental health. If he was a Democrat, they would be cheering this and that he's sort of, you know, breaking down these barriers and being open about his struggles with mental health and some of his struggles. And that he's not perfect, but he's always striving to be better. Obviously, Herschel Walker has some baggage. There's, There's no denying that. But. I think this ad, the sort of positiveness of it and the, the understanding that, like, look, I'm not perfect and neither is the other guy, but I, I sort of believe in a better America. I believe in a brighter future. We don't always hear that from our leaders, and I, I sort of appreciate that that humbleness and that positive tone of that ad. You know, Scott, you talked about the, the tracking polls uh, in Pennsylvania. I was just looking at the real clear tracking polls in, in Georgia. I see Walker was up maybe at the uh, around Labor Day in a, maybe two or three polls in a row, but since then has not been up at all since, uh, you know, the first or second week of September. Are we are we thinking that the that, that Walker somehow is going ahead, or is this a situation where we're, you know, again, this the, the polling can't capture the Republican electorate because the left, that electorate doesn't really respond to pollsters? I've talked to a few people about the Georgia polling situation, and – I do think people see some parallels between Walker and Trump in terms of what people are willing to tell a pollster. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was in New York uh, last week for TV and I was having dinner at the hotel restaurant by myself, but a guy uh, was sitting near me and he came up to me and he was a, an avid CNN viewer, but he was from Georgia and he lived in the Atlanta suburbs and kind of identified himself as a, 
as a Republican, a lawyer, white collar guy, really nice guy. And he, and I just asked him, you know, I just said, you know, who's going to win the Senate race? And he, it was interesting. Like he started talking and, and he talked for several minutes and you could tell he was like working through it. And you, you know, you could tell he loved Brian Kemp, the governor, who I think is obliterating Abrams down there, but he was trying to reconcile the Senate race. And he finally kind of got around to saying, well, you know, ultimately we gotta, we gotta put a check on Joe Biden. So I'm going to get there, but I didn't, I wasn't sure if he was going to get there or not. And then I was, I was thinking as he was talking, I'm not sure this guy would tell a pollster everything he just told me, you know, like he, like listening to him work through it. I definitely think he's vote Herschel Walker. I'm not sure he would have told a pollster that. And so I just wonder if there's a little bit of this shyness down there. It's hard to know. I mean, you know, I'm just, we're just speculating here, but I, I don't know. I, I think it's real possible you're getting some of that down there. That's it. Scott Jennings, your trusted voice. You tell him all your secrets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. At dinner at a hotel in New York city, <laughs> just pop on by, give me all your, give me everything you, you got. <laughs> Since I have the, uh, the, the real clear, uh, uh, the polls, you know, page pulled up here that I, I went ahead and I went out West to Nevada and really, it's, it's a far different story as far as the more – since September, first week of September at the same time, you have only one poll out of the last eight that they're tracking on here that has Cortez Masto, the Democrat, in the lead. Everything else has Laxalt up by one, two, three, or four. Yeah, I, I, think, I think Republicans are pretty confident that Laxalt has moved into the lead there. And uh, now, interestingly, Kevin, am I right about this in Nevada – I believe you can vote for the candidates, but isn't there a selection for none of these in Nevada? I don't know. Let's look that up. I think there. And so I I was reading some back and forth about like, you know, I I don't know. I I, look, I think Laxalt's going to win. I'm not that worried about it, but I, I found that to be a quirk of the Nevada ballot. If if that is true. Oh yeah. Uh, None none of these candidates is a voting option. Yeah. Uh, So runoff or anything. If if what happens is if none of them reach 50%. I don't think they have runoffs in Nevada. Uh, they certainly have it in they Georgia. They resurrect which, Harry Reid and send him back to the Senate. Wasn't that uh, the yeah. a lot. Brewster's Millions thing? None of the above? No, none of the above, yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking Georgia, of Nevada, I, I, yeah. I do hear Joe, by the way. I've heard a number of, of campaign strategists from both parties who I interact with say there is a there is a lot, a lot of people dealing with those races that think a runoff in Georgia is – perhaps the most likely outcome because even if Herschel is not over the hump, Warnock's not at 50 either. And so it's not as though, you know, everybody's shifting from Walker to Warnock. I mean, there's a lot of problems with that candidacy too. So, you know, depending on what happens in the other races, we could all be right back in Georgia a few weeks after election day, (laughs) uh, you know, trying to decide Senate control. That's like we were two years ago. Yeah. And before we get off Georgia too, I have to make this point, Georgia, which of course has the new Jim Crow voting laws, um, as we all know, uh, 130,000 uh, early votes cast in Georgia, record-breaking number of votes for a midterm election. So I guess the Jim Crow voting laws aren't doing what they were supposed to do, <laughs> or we got to go back to the drawing board on these, um, because apparently it's still pretty easy to vote. And, of course, we wanted to stop people from voting. That was the point of those laws. Um, so I don't know what's going on there. Hopefully Biden can go down there and throw around some more insults, and yeah. uh, we can get that figured out because – of course, we know Georgia Republicans don't want people voting, um, and we're getting record-breaking voting. So something went hot haywire there. And, and, even, in the face, and even, even in the face of that, by the way, Stacey Abrams got asked about that and said, 
Well, even though we have all these people voting, it's still voter suppression. <laughs> I mean, she, I mean, I mean, the, the narrative. When you've got one trick, you way, just we, keep doing it. Well, I mean, we haven't talked about this on the on the pod, but you know, she had a lawsuit. Her group had a lawsuit against the the voting laws in Georgia, and it got thrown out. And the judge said that the plaintiffs here uh, could not prove a single instance where a voter. <laughs> was suppressed or prevented from voting. I mean, they, they literally had nothing. They had nothing except this narrative. And I think that's why her campaign is failing down there is because everybody sees that that's, that's all it is. It's a narrative grounded in absolutely nothing but uh, a made-up uh, story, you know, that she's made up for her own personal benefit. And it's been very beneficial to her personally. She's become a wildly wealthy and, and, and famous person, but it is, not, it is not a newer to her political benefit, I can tell you. Before we move off Nevada, I just to say a thing about Laxalt, he has run just such a great campaign from the start of this. He has identified the issues that people care about, and he has stuck to them. I know the other side has tried to, to waver him off on some of these social issues, but I mean, from the beginning, he had endorsements from every sector of the Republican Party, from Donald Trump to you know the Senate Leadership Fund is, is with him. Uh, he has just really run such an incredible campaign, and I think you know Republicans have been trying to get a foothold back in Nevada for a while now. And uh, like Scott said, I think people generally think he, he, he's going to pull it out in the end. Um, so, so we didn't want to go back to making fun of Stacey Abrams without saying good job. Good job, Laxalt. CBS News uh, battleground tracker YouGov poll, by the way, that was came out that was conducted from October 14th through the 19th, uh, has a margin of error plus or minus 4.5 points, has Laxalt up again, by one percentage point over Catherine Cortez uh, Masto. But I want to point out, Scott um, and team, that uh, part of that same YouGov poll with CBS News, they asked the voters to volunteer, you know, which are the top concerns. Uh, Number one, economy. Number two, goes hand in hand, inflation. So 84% said said economy, 82% said inflation. Um, 69% 69% crime, 60% immigration, 58% said election issues was among the top, 56% gun policy. So the election issues that Stacey Abrams is concerned about, that that did pop up. But, Scott, uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't see anywhere on that particular um, – the top six issues identified in the poll as being what Democrats consider to be their, their ticket to ride here on the midterms, and that's the topic of abortion. Yeah, it did not make the, the list in Nevada. And in the New York Times Siena poll last weekend, it clocked in at a whopping 5%. It was like seventh or eighth on the list nationally. In poll after poll after poll, Monmouth today, uh, it's down the list. Um, in poll after poll after poll, the top issues are economy, inflation, crime, and immigration. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because what every Republican campaign in the country is being run on. Economy, inflation, crime, immigration, that's it. That is the refrain from all these Republican candidates and Democrat candidates are running on things that are just at the other end of the spectrum of importance. And so, I mean, Democrats have spent all their money on this. They have staked their entire strategy on this. They're fishing off the wrong pier. I mean, the Republicans are, are on the end of the spectrum here of issues that just have the most people that are worried about it. And Democrats are on the end of the spectrum that are the, it's the narrowest group. And I just and, and I think if you look at this inside of this show on independence, people who are middle of the road, don't strongly identify with either party. They are as worried about economy, inflation and crime as the Republicans are. 
And so all the all the Democrats did really was invest in a complete and total narrow base strategy that ignored independents and ignored people who care about these big ticket economic issues. I, you know, you hear a few people trying to unwind it now, but I think it's too late. Kevin, Jared, I, yeah. I think they I just think they made a bad bet. And now these uh, chickens are coming home to roost. Yeah. The other issue on there that you might tie more directly with with Democrats would be the election issues, concerns with, with election issues. Um, and I sort of like lump that into like the broader conversation around democracy. Um, but there was a New York Times Siena College poll this week. A higher percentage of Americans, 33 percent, think the Democrat Party is a major threat to democracy. Only 28 percent think Republicans are a major threat to democracy. So even what? that other, you know, section <laughs> yeah. in which Democrats have spent a significant amount of money on character and democracy and kind of like institutions and some of these ads, even that's not well, resonating with voters. Well, well but, but, you know, I, I get it because one of the core Democrat or left arguments right now is that you can either vote for Democrats or you can vote to end democracy. Yeah. Like in their mind, if any Republican wins an election, it means it portends the end of the Republic. Their argument is, I mean, I keep hearing this, this over and over, and it's like the laziest punditry. Well, if you're still for Herschel Walker, you're just willing to put party over country. Well, what vote, what vote do I cast that would make you happy, that would make you believe I'm a patriot or that I believe in my country? Are you Essentially, they're saying if you don't vote Democrat, you don't love America. You, you're not a patriot, that you don't love your country. And I, I think people hear that, and I think they think they're being clever when they say it. But I think people hear that and say, I, that, 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 is, that is terrible. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. You can't tell me that the only two choices are vote Democrat or vote to destroy America, because I don't believe it. This idea that we have to have a uniparty system that only one party can exist for the country to exist. I think that's kind of a hateful argument for a whole bunch of people out there who are worried about a lot of issues. Let me ask you one more question about the, this Nevada poll and not to break it up too much, but this, the, the, the gender gap is as pronounced there as that as it usually is. And the Democrat in Nevada, 57, 40 lead among women, the Republican, a 56, 40 lead uh, among men. And so in a year of abortion rights, abortion access, the Dobbs case, et cetera, uh, it, it, it's, it seems to me that there is, if I'm a politico in Nevada and I'm concerned about what's going to happen here, I'd have to look at that and wonder about the most motivation to get to the polls. Now, you're, we, already, we already broke down the poll that says what are the most important issues, and that would seem to suggest that those are the issues that would drive people to vote one way or the other. But that said, is there a, am I right to be at all curious about that, Scott? Well, I mean, there is a pronounced gender gap and you see that. um, I mean, you see that in a lot of these Senate races, but you know, what's interesting is there's really not a gender gap on like Joe Biden's approval uh, in the Monmouth poll today. Uh, He was at 39 approved, 55 disapproved. Men, he was at 40 to 54, and women, he was at 40 to 53. So it, it's interesting why you, you do see a gender gap in the partisan race on the ballot. You do have some agreement among men and women that Joe Biden's doing a terrible job. <laughs> and so <laughs> when, you, when, when you think about what's going to be determinative for, you know, an independent or like, you know, the normal historical forces here um, uh, regarding the party in power, 
mean, there's just a heck of a lot of people. I mean, independents in the Mama survey were 3459 on Biden. Uh, I, I have to believe that 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 that's going to be more determinative than the than the gender gap issues than, than you raised. But it is worth. I mean, I think the other thing that, that still exists, Joe, is the the gap on on education. If you have a college degree versus if you don't. We saw those splits manifest themselves heavily in the Trump years. I, I still think you're also seeing that in these races, too. We saw um, a few months, months ago the Kansas referendum that surprised people that the uh, the abortion rights uh, side of that uh, abortion rights referendum uh, won, that won it. There are um, – I was, I was just curious. I looked it up as far as how many states have abortion rights-related referenda on the ballot this fall, and none of them are really competitive – Senate races. It's California, Michigan, Kentucky, Montana, and Vermont. I would just think yeah. if I were if I were a candidate though in a in a state where I was running for Senate and that was on the ballot, I think I would probably pay a little bit more attention to that being a, a potential issue. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to. Uh, I want to ask you. Well, actually, before I move on, to Donald Trump, Scott, anything that I missed on on Senate races you wanted to break down? No, not really. I mean, I think. Uh, um, uh, we got these debates coming up. Uh, the last big one is in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I've watched some of the other debates so far. I, you know, I feel like the Republicans have performed just fine. I don't think any major faux pas have occurred. So, no, I think I think we're all watching the big three, and you know, we'll know more this we'll know more this time next week. I, I, we didn't talk about it, but I will say it's apparent to me turnout is going to be massive. Uh, it's it's pretty obvious in the polling. It's pretty obvious in the early voting. Like, turnout's going to be massive. And uh, maybe even bigger than 2018, which was a record midterm turnout. So looking for a lot of voters out there, and especially in these big states. So what do you make of uh, of the former president, Republican President Donald Trump, trashing the Joe O'Day, the Colorado Republican candidate for Senate? Here's what I make of it. It's stupid. Yeah. And and yeah. and um, it, it proves once again that he has never had an interest in governing. He's never had an interest in Republican governance. And I, I, I read this Jeremy Peters book, uh, writes for the New York Times about Trump, and he interviewed Steve Bannon. It, it, this, it, this comes back all the time to me when I see things like this. Basically, if, if Trump can't be in office or if he can't win, then he doesn't want anyone else to win either because he doesn't want people to believe that every Republican but him can be elected. And so it explains why he did what he did in Georgia. It explains why he's trashing O'Day. And I just, I think people ought to take this into consideration when they're thinking about the state of the Republican party. I mean, you have a guy here who is, you know, nominally the the head of the Republican party who doesn't want some Republicans to win. He juxtaposed this against Mitch McConnell and others and most other party leaders, Kevin McCarthy, they don't have a litmus test. They just want you to win if you are a Republican. They want the majority. They want to be able to govern. And I don't think Trump does. I think, you know, there's some there's some world where he'll be angry if Republicans win because, you know, it's like, well, we picked up seats in 2020 while you were losing. We just picked up the Congress while you weren't on the ballot. He doesn't want there to be a narrative that the Republican Party is better off without him. And I think this drives a lot of his decision making. But what he did to O'Day was was terrible. I don't know if we're going to win out there. and I don't know how close it is. It's a tough state anyway, but it makes it harder. And so I also think he he's setting himself up for this narrative after the election. Like everybody but you was rowing the boat here. And uh, to me, that's, you know, if I were in issues, I wouldn't want that narrative, but it, it will exist now if O'Day doesn't win. Right. Everybody was really quick to 
criticized Senator McConnell when he he said once that um, you know candidate quality matters, and he he was just making a vague comment that maybe you know there might be some candidates out there that need some work and he caught a bunch of hell for that but at the same time his senate leadership fund the super PAC aligned with senator mcconnell has dumped 196 million dollars across the board into all of these races and between september 1st and election day half of all republican spending in senate races is coming from the senate leadership fund so if you add up all of the other uh, – what the candidates are spending themselves and what all the, the other PACs are, it's McConnell's candidate uh, – McConnell's super PAC is spending over half of that. Meanwhile, the super PAC affiliate with uh, former President Trump has spent $8.4 million. I have to – which you bring up fundraising and, and Donald Trump. I have to ask you about – is this true that I, – I, I read this online, but I, I'm doing my fact-checking with my, my friends here, Jared, Kevin, and Scott. So there is – Trump's Save America Committee that is ostensibly raising money to help the Blake Masters campaign in Arizona. What I read was, but I don't know if this is like the, you know, needs a Washington Post fact check, that a $1,000 donation defaults $990 to Trump's Save America Committee and only $10 to the Masters Campaign Committee, even though it was being done to ostensibly in the name of to help Blake Masters win election. Is this true? Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. Uh, This is common uh, for the Trump organization. In fact, during the Georgia runoffs uh, after the 2020 election, um, they sent out a bunch of fundraising pleas for Georgia saying, help us save Georgia, you know, help us help us save the Senate. And in the fine print, all the money was going back to the Trump committee. And of course, we know he was publicly sabotaging the Senate campaigns down there. But yeah, I mean, it was a big week for Donald Trump. He was he was out sabotaging Joe O'Day in Colorado, and he was siphoning gas out of Blake Masters' tank in Arizona. I mean, it's, those are the moves of someone who is not serious about getting his team over the line. And um, I don't know how all this is going to shake out, but we ought not forget it. I just, I just, it's just stunning to me. I mean, I guess I've read that online. I saw it on Twitter. With Trump, I guess the things after a while just become so. There's just so many things that happen; it's hard to be outraged anymore, just because of the fact that it's uh, one more thing after another. But I, the the fact that basically ten dollars out of every thousand dollars for this for the ostensibly to being raised for Blake Masters is actually going to the campaign whose name is atop the uh, the effort. That's just uh, that's a new. One. I'm surprised it's ten. I'm surprised it's not <laughs> ten cents. I mean, honestly, like it. I mean, it's terrible. And and the thing is, Trump does command the loyalty of a lot of donors and small dollar donors, especially. He has the capacity to help these people, but he chooses not to, and uh, it's a shame. Former Vice President Mike Pence, speaking, I believe, at Georgetown uh, the other day, uh, asked if uh, if Trump was the nominee. Would he vote for him saying there might be somebody else I'd prefer more? What does that mean? He's running. Well, he's insert running the little running yeah. man emoji. Yeah. <laughs> insert running. Man. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Pence and Pence uh, alluded to, you know, his, his looking to the future after the midterm. I mean, he wants to run. I don't know that there's a huge market for him in the half of the party that wants something other than Trump right now, but he's earned it. I mean, he's earned the right. And, uh, and I believe he will run and, uh, and uh, we'll see how he does. But I also think that it would be hard for me to commit to supporting someone for president who had 
in the recent past sent a mob of people to murder me. Now, <laughs> I, I mean, it seems like to there, do that. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like to do that would put my safety at risk all over again. And so, I can understand why Mike Pence might have hard feelings, given that the supporters of Donald Trump were recently heard chanting, "Hang Mike Pence! Hang Mike Pence!" I'm not sure I would want to support that either. So, I think I think Vice President Pence should be given some leeway here. On, uh, on on his vote. <laughs> Kevin, uh, uh, Jared and Scott so far are neck and neck in the tongue-in-cheek contest tonight uh, <laughs> on the podcast. So I welcome you to think of something else to, to say here. But I do find it interesting, though, that, I mean, despite the fact that everything that Scott just brought up, what Pence says is, and that those remarks, all my focus has been on the midterm elections. It'll stay that way for the next 20 days. This is what a basically a party faithful person does is they, yeah. they put aside the things you're talking about and says, listen, I don't want to get in the way of the overall message. Yeah, I thought the the interesting, Scott just said sort of like, where is Mike Pence's lane, you know, if he does run? Um, you know, I, I don't know that he differentiates himself enough from some of these other candidates. But he did kind of stake a flag in the ground in that he very much reject the populist message uh, that the party has embraced, certainly in... Some of the current candidates, J.D. Vance comes to mind. Uh, so I, I don't know that he sticks out. You know, if a Tim Scott runs, if Tom Cotton runs, I don't know that he's more of a traditional conservative than they are. Uh, and so I don't know where Mike Pence finds his lane, uh, you know, in this Republican primary. But it adds some interest because there's a chance him and the guy, again, who sent a mob <laughs> after him will stand on a stage together. Uh, and it's one thing for for Trump to have insulted you the way he has many of the other people who are on that stage, uh, but Mike Pence adds an interesting dynamic to the to I, what will be a crowded stage. I think. You know, the other thing about the speech was he gave a pretty forceful defense of traditional conservatism and kind of a something of a condemnation of populism, mm-hmm. and and uh, and so that's obviously how he sees himself, and that's obviously how he views the best version of the Republican party. I, I think, I think the candidate who's most likely to emerge, if not Donald Trump is someone who's, who's going to make a compelling case to blend both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, because um, I, I do think there are new, more populist voters in the party and they should be listened to. And I do think there are still traditional conservatives who deserve to be listened to too. And it, it strikes me, somebody's going to find that sweet spot and be able to say, here's how we can all be together, work together, and push back on the excesses of the left. And so be interesting to see how some of these arguments develop. Pence just may ultimately be too close to everything in order to be viable. I mean, yeah. it may be that the country is so hungry for new, something new, that they're going to look outside of Washington to Florida or to Virginia or to South Carolina uh, uh, for, for just people who are who are a little bit removed from the, the anxiety and the drama of the past. Hear me out. No one could be a better candidate to be the running mate of the next candidate, uh, candidate or nominee than Mike Pence. He should just vie for vice president again <laughs> and say, I'll do the right things. I'll look at you admiringly. Yeah, exactly. It'd be hilarious. Actually, is he term limited? I No, he wouldn't be. No. He's only been one, one term. That's right. He only That's served right. one term. Yeah. Yeah. That's good right. question. So, um, but go ahead, Kevin. Uh, yeah, I thought the the condemnation of populism was interesting because obviously he spent his entire career as a uh, uh, 
a strong Christian conservative, but it was kind of the populace that helped him get into office, helped him become more than just the governor from Indiana, but the vice president. So I thought that was an interesting message, but it also, you know, kind of peers back the curtain to see what was going on in the White House. If he was giving voice to that, you know, traditional conservative message over, over what maybe a lot of the other populists in the room wanted to think, um, but it, 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 I, I just noted that with a little bit of interest that he's yeah. vice president in no small part because of uh, an ability to blend in the populace and the traditional conservatives. I want to talk to you a little bit, guys, about uh, the, the most important things, um, you know, and that's my fantasy football team. So Javante Williams and Rashad Penny both out for the season which really sucks for me. You know, this is, this is a terrible situation going on and I don't know. And so that's that. So I picked up Eno Benjamin off the waiver wire and I find myself, Scott, wondering if see, this is, we're recording this at almost six o'clock Eastern time on Thursday, October 20th. And really Benjamin is set for maybe have a good game tonight against the saints, but only if James Conner doesn't play. So I, do I find myself hoping that a player's injury is bad enough that my player gets to play? And this brings me to your interview of, or at least interview with, uh, former NFL player Dante Stallworth on mm. CNN on, on Wednesday night. And I find myself somewhat seen. But am, am I the problem? Am I yeah. contributing to the, you know, here I'm, am I rooting for an injury? What is, what is my problem? Yeah, I, I think you are the problem. Uh, <laughs> um, it, that's tongue in cheek, and not just on this. And we can and we'll make a list for next week's show. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did interview a little bit, but on a panel, uh, Devonte Stallworth. We were all kind of interviewing him there. Allison Camerata, Laura Coates, and Karen Finney, and myself. But we did a, a panel on the uh, the NFL concussion story with Tua and 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 having Devonte Stallworth there. You know, I mean. I guess I could have spouted off my opinion, but I'm not a football player. He is. I just thought it was – I wanted to hear what he had to say. I mean, he's lived this life, and he, he was really a thoughtful and insightful guy, Jared. We got a little bit of audio from, from one of the questions I asked. Yeah. Um, the NFL has tried to do things, but, again, we've seen it fail recently. So, In your experience, do you feel like the fan base has gotten thirstier for more violence over the course of your career in dealing with football? That's a good question. I, I will say, um, and I'm, I'm guilty of this because I actually love fantasy football, but I think fantasy football has, has made the players more, look at players less human and more as commodities. And yeah, um, I agree with that. I yeah, and, and so when guys get injured, the first thing that you'll see, I mean, I know Twitter's you know, the worst place to go, but when you'll see on Twitter where they'll, where they'll, have, well, they'll say something like, oh, my fantasy team's going to, you know, this guy was knocked out of the game with a head injury, and it's, and, you know, that, that's the conversation that's happening. So, uh, you know, it, it is, it, like I said, it's something that, that has to be, there has to be some kind of systemic change. And I hope the NFL, I know the NFL will, because they have no choice. They have to uh, make amends to this new policy. But, but also, to, um, I, I will say, to answer your question earlier, what you were speaking about earlier, I, I think the, the, the violence of the game is, is something that drives the game. So until we see these players more as humans and, more, and less as commodities, I think it'll, It'll continue to be that way, unfortunately. That's that's uh, Dante Stallworth played ten seasons in the NFL. I mentioned earlier Javante Williams, so I we may have kind of uh, juxtaposed Javante and Dante, but Dante Stallworth uh, and interesting Scott. And I thought, I mean, what a what an ideal person to be asked about and to be able to talk to about this whole issue in the first place. Yeah, it was it was a good panel and a, and a really thoughtful panel. Karen Finney, my Democratic sparring partner on many nights was sitting there and um, 
she had had brain surgery recently and um, had some thoughts about, you know, just just what it was like to go through having to to rehab after a brain surgery and a brain injury. And so it it was a good panel and and having Mr. Stallworth there and uh, hearing him talk about life in the NFL and just it it was it was a great conversation because I think a lot of parents are struggling with football right now should their kids play should they not play I think you know uh, the other night guys when Tua got his the big hit that game was on Amazon I was watching I I mean they showed the replay of like a thousand times I mean and I and I think a lot of people were wondering you know are we glorifying the most violent and most dangerous aspect of this and are we conditioning people to want more of it and and just how much in harm's way are we putting these players and then you you know, I said on the show, you know, the compete, the competing impulses, well, they're adults, you know, they have to be able to make their own choices. And I, know, I think it's, it's a big conversation that's going on in the country right now. Yeah. I, 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 I kind of came up. So I played high school football, I played football since I was nine, then through high school and pop Warner and all those and loved it. I had two teammates. So I sort of, I graduated high school 2013. That was really when we started caring about concussions and, all the players had to take the the pre- preliminary tests, and then there was a test if you, you know, showed symptoms and all those sorts of things. I had two teammates lose entire seasons to concussions. That was unheard of, you know. Mm. And so we're we're ten years removed from really starting to care about this and understanding the symptoms and those sorts of things. Um, and now, you know, Scott, like you said, the the week before when Tua clearly had concussion like symptoms, stumbling around the field, and was cleared you know the the response was well he was cleared the doctor gave him the go ahead so he must be good right and uh you know i I do think there's a part of us that has become still sort of numb to this uh because you know when you break a leg in half half like joe theisman you you sort of see that you can't see a brain injury you can't see a brain bleed you don't see a you don't see a concussion uh you know in the post-game interview as much uh, and so I, I do think the NFL sort of has a problem on its hands with how it's dealing with this, how you prevent it, how you take care of these players when they are consenting adults, right? If a, if a, if a doctor, the team doctor clears you to play, you know, that's your choice. Um, and so I think just the American public being more open and honest about this conversation and, you know, not glorifying these sorts of things and hopefully especially younger children understanding what a traumatic brain injury can mean for you long term. Uh, which again we didn't know much about a decade ago. I think that hopefully, especially for kids uh, who who want to play and who care about playing, or parents who care about those sorts of things, I just think having a better conversation, a more more open and honest conversation, can be helpful. Scott, I think that your comment on CNN and again here uh, is so spot on, and that has to do with you know who does not have a conflict of interest to be able to give the player uh, the, the human being you know, uh, just solid advice. I think about so many of these major, these pro athletes, you know, they are basically corporations and they're, the shareholders are their, you know, their entourages, their families, their agents, you know, the whole, you know, fill in the player and their player's name Inc. And, you know, are they going to be as concerned about the long-term consequences of playing in a game than they are about, Hey, get out there and, Let's make sure we get our check. So that would be my concern overall is, I mean, I don't know how you can, this book ends the entire show here, guys, about my wondering about where, where do I go for solid medical advice? that's not based upon some other uh, ulterior motive. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here. 
Where do you go for yeah. solid medical advice with that small ulterior motive? And these players only know what they're told. I mean, uh, you know, if a doctor says, okay, you're, you're good to go. I mean, you're going to play. And I mean, one of these doctors got fired in the, mm-hmm. yeah. in this case. And, um, uh, for clearing him, you know, one week and then he, then he got, uh, you know, obviously another concussion the next week. And so I, I don't know. I, I think the pressure from the team to play has got to be high. The league wants them to play, obviously. I mean, it's in everyone's best interest for these guys to play. And I just, I did wonder out loud last night, well, you know, are these players getting the most independent advice they can get so that they have some confidence that it's in their best interests? And I, you know, I hope they are. I mean, I, I would like to believe they are, but I, you know, it's, it's hard not to worry about or wonder about it. So most importantly, if, if you were up to you guys, would you start, you know, Benjamin against the saints tonight or would you AJ Dillon against the commanders? The problem there is, is that Dillon almost is, is, you know, he's, he has to have, I hope that Aaron Jones doesn't get as many carries for one reason or another. So Kevin, who do I, who should I start uh, there? You do not I, want my I advice. Say, I am don't ask second Kevin. to last in my fantasy league right now. But, I, okay. I whooped Kevin last <laughs> week. I whooped him. So Jared, who should I start? I would probably start Dillon. I mean, the commanders have probably have one of the lower ranked defenses in the league. Um, and so, and the Rodgers passing game has not been great. The Packers haven't looked good, period. Um, but I don't think he trusts those those rookie wide receivers. So I'd, I'd stick with the Packers' run game. It's one of the best in the NFL. Seen red herd time before we wrap up this episode of uh, Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Jared, you're on a hot streak. All right. Uh, I'll stick with sports and I'll stick with the sort of theme of the night trust in media and trust in those sorts of things. A couple weeks ago, I introduced you to the villain of the podcast, <laughs> Seth Wickersham. Wickersham. Uh, <laughs> Shame, Yes. Uh, and so the Seth Wickersham Jr., who I mentioned that night too, uh, trolling Volan, Ben Volan, uh, back in the news this week. Um, there was a story or a report that Ben Volan, a uh, Boston media member, came out saying that there was a, you know, Mac Jones and some other Patriots players had had some disputes mm-hmm. and that he was becoming unliked in the locker room. Mm-hmm. And so this was said on the uh, largest sports radio station in Massachusetts, WEEI. Well, it turns out Trollin' Volan had gotten trolled himself. Uh, <laughs> a fake DM from a just random fan claiming that he knew somebody who worked in the season ticket booth uh, for the Patriots DM'd Ben Volan saying, hey, I'm hearing people in the stadium aren't liking Mac Jones that much. And Ben Volan did not choose to uh, get a second opinion on this DM or uh, check the source, even though it was a completely random person. Um and ran with it, and then the, the other, you know, Boston media outlets picked it up. Of course, it was a juicy story. And then the uh, random DMer came out and uh, said, no, I completely tricked trolling Ben <laughs> Volan on this. Uh, ben Volan put out a statement this morning saying, I should have checked it. I apologize for that. Uh, but nonetheless, the damage had been done both to himself and to the, you know, the, the Patriots organization and the players. Um Again, this is why people don't trust some of the Boston media sources. They have done this time after time. Tomasi many years ago, Ron Borges many years ago, tricked with fake DMs or fake stories. Uh, and so uh, it was very funny because I do not like, as you can tell, trolling Ben Volan or Seth Wickersham or the other ones I have mentioned. So good day for me uh, to sort of uh, walk over my enemies a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, when some random person you don't know DMs you a breaking news story, maybe double check it. Kevin? Yeah, uh, just before we got on here, uh, in Lexington's Herald-Leader, Lexington's Congressman Andy Barr 
published an op-ed about uh, the Republicans' commitment to America and kind of making his closing argument for his election. But it's it's bigger than just his election. It's for all of flyover country. It's presenting a positive agenda to, for America's comeback. Um, I really like the the positive spin he put on it and uh, getting getting the country back on track. So um, that's my scene. Red herd. Great op-ed piece today in the Herald Leader. My um, scene, Red Herd, Scott, comes from almost, if, for those folks who know movie history, and it come, almost like it felt like the scene from Silkwood and, and uh, after maybe being exposed to radiation, because after I had an overnight trip, business trip, and I stayed at the hotel, and I was getting into bed about midnight, and suddenly I felt like a little bite on my leg. I pulled back the sheets and the covers, and there I see a tiny little, what appears to be a bed bug. At this point... Driving back home from said business trip, my wife will not let me in the house <laughs> unless I completely disrobe in the garage. So this is the scene Red Herd is kind of grotesque this week because it is it is uh, me basically uh, in the in the 30 degrees garage uh, last night uh, having to prepare myself into a defumiga- or fumigation of, of the, all the bed bugs. Out of, did you burn uh, your did you burn your clothes? We put them all in trash bags, and they have been taken, I think, to a dry cleaner to be able to be uh, to be taken care of here. She said, there's no way we're going to let you into this house and let you – I mean, I was thinking well, – Wait, that she was, did you yes. assess the dry cleaner? Well, I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sacrifices were made. Man, a lot of – I don't think just there's let anything us, I'm Let us know which yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, just we'll, – we'll go to that one anymore. <laughs> Holy cow. Mine is, uh, I got to tell you, I saw something this week and I was just, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Stacey Abrams, who we, I know we talked about earlier on the show, but she was on MSNBC and somehow, Jared, if you've got it queued up there, made the case that because Democrats can't get inflation under control, we need to have more abortions. <laughs> and so, terrible. Let's hear it. You're running for governor of Georgia. Uh I would assume, maybe incorrectly, but while abortion is an issue, it nowhere reaches the level of interest of voters in terms of the cost of gas, food, bread, milk, things like that. What can a governor, what could you do as governor to alleviate the concerns of Georgia voters about those livability, daily, hourly issues that they're confronted with? But let's be clear. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're concerned about how much food costs. For women, this is not a reductive issue. You can't divorce being right. forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. And so these are, it's important for us to have both and conversations. We don't have the luxury of reducing it or separating them out. But we also have to talk about what a governor can do. A governor can address housing prices. A governor can address the cost of education. A governor can put money into the pockets of everyday hardworking Georgians instead of giving tax cuts to the wealthy. That's what I talk about on the trail, and that's what's resonating. But let's not pretend that women, half the population, especially those of childbearing age, they understand that having a child is absolutely an economic issue. It is only politicians who see it as simply another cultural conversation. It is a real biological and economic imperative conversation that women need to have. Ms. Abrams, this I, is Eddie Glaude. I, I, I have first to tell of all, you guys, when I heard up. this, I thought, what a hell of a closing argument. <laughs> you know, we can't fix inflation, so let's, let's ramp up the abortion. I mean, you can make that argument about 
any any group of people. Well, you know, old people are pretty old, pretty hard to keep alive. We can save a lot of money. <laughs> if we just you know got rid of. Them. I mean, you yeah. you could make that claim about. I just I, I have found her commentary on abortion this election because it was a couple of weeks ago that she went on that rant about how babies in the in the womb don't actually have heartbeats. You guys catch all this? I mean, a yeah. couple of weeks ago it was. Well, these aren't actually heartbeats. I mean, yes, yes, Stacey Abrams, human babies have hearts, and the hearts beat. But she was claiming that they're not actually human hearts. It was bizarre. Also and then this I, rant, I believe it was, I think that rant was about, uh, like, almost like it was like an audio trick. It was like the, yes. they, they, had, they had created this sound effect. It wasn't they. She said men. Men had specifically yeah. created a machine to trick women into believing that babies have human hearts. I mean, it... I mean, you want to talk about conspiracy theories in America? Golly. And then she goes on this rant about, about you know, how in abortion is the cure for inflation. This, this is a broken brain person. And I, anyway, I just, <laughs> I think Brian Kemp is going to win going away. And I'm glad because mm-hmm. anybody with these views, in my opinion, deserves to lose and they deserve to lose badly. So that's my, that's my scene read heard this week. Just the continued uh, craziness of Stacey Abrams. You know, the ultimate, I don't know if it's irony or not, but wouldn't it be something if, if Brian Kemp's popularity over Stacey Abrams or Stacey Abrams basically uh, wet in the bed here would be that uh, that, uh, that that's what carries Herschel Walker over the finish line in Georgia. That'd be, that'd be something else. All right. Kevin, Jared, Scott, fantastic time with you all. Hope you all have a wonderful week. We're all we're, next week. We'll be counting down basically a week and a half away from midterm election time for all of you. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joe Arnold, and this has been Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.